What a joy it is to have partners in the gospel together. It is great to be united. It is great to be a part of the work of justice. And it's great to see a dear brother and sister uh, in this place again. What a joy it is. When I think of heaven, the reunion that it will be, right, all across the world, all across time, followers of Jesus together and uh, to share some stories. I could, I could just sit and listen to the stories uh, all morning, uh, but we have, uh, have some work to do with God's Word. But before we, we do that, uh, we're going to get back to the Lord with our financial giving. And one of the ways I want you to think about it is this. We're, we're doing a lot of thinking about justice, some hard thinking. We're going to do some more hard thinking today, but we don't want to just think about justice. We don't want to just think about righteousness and love and mercy and all these great concepts. We want, to, we want to be practical. We want to give back. And Hubert and Sarah have mentioned some specific ways you can do that, and we've, we've had a whole lineup of opportunities where you can practically get engaged. But one of the clearest things you can do is give back. Because when you give back financially, you're going to support the work of justice through our partners you're also giving to care for the vulnerable in our own congregation. So just know that when you, when you give. So you can give in a number of ways. You can, you can give online. You can give through the envelopes and uh, drop them off at the boxes on your way out. But let's, uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we come to you, we're thankful for the work that you're doing. And we ask now that as we give back to you, portion of what you have given to us, that you would bless, bless our offerings to do the work for your kingdom. And Lord, as we come to you this morning, and as we think of all that's going on in our world, we want to take a few moments and pray for Ukraine. We pray specifically for those who are suffering right now. We pray for your protection, for boldness, for love, for courage, for strength, for wisdom for the churches in Ukraine, and how to serve best. We pray that for their trust in the Lord. We pray especially, God, for your provision for those in need. We think of children being evacuated. We think of those with special needs and disabilities. We think of the churches that are in surrounding nations that are preparing to receive. May you empower them. May you equip them. Lord, we pray for leaders. We pray for President Zelensky, Vladimir Putin. We pray, Father, that you would make a way for peace that you would make a way for de-escalation, that you would make a way where there seems to be no way. We pray for our leaders in our country. We pray for President Biden. We pray for all those who are making decisions, even today. We pray, Father, specifically for family units, 
through OMS who have been ministering in the Ukraine. We're thankful that four of those families have been evacuated. We pray for the one that remains in the western part of the country. And Lord, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you're good, that you're in control, even when things seem out of control. And Lord, we ask now as we enter into your word that you would give us open hearts and minds to receive. I pray, Father, that my words are clear, that they're helpful, that they're true. Burn off whatever doesn't do those things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're talking about justice. And even as we think about all that's going on in the world, all the injustice that we see, how are we to respond? How are we to live as followers of Jesus in the midst of injustice? How do we bring the justice the righteousness, the love that's represented by God. How do we, how do, we do that? Okay, we're going to dive into that today. I want to remind you that next week, week four of the series, we're going to answer some questions. Some of you have said, you know what, I, I get it. I understand the foundation, but I've got some specific questions about our culture and what that looks like. So we're going to tackle some tough things next week, but no, you can still text in a question. It's not going to be live (laughs) Q&A. We're going to prep that a little bit, but I want to deal with what is on your hearts and minds as you apply some of these concepts. All right, so would you do that? Would you text in your questions? The number uh, should be on the screen. So the last couple weeks, we've been building a biblical foundation for justice. We've, we've looked into the Old Testament and this, this concept of, of justice, of mishpat, of, of, of caring for the vulnerable, the poor, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, and we've, we've seen how that carries through in the teachings of Jesus. We've said that when we ask the question, what is justice and why do we do it, it is reflected in the who. It is reflected in the very character of God. Last week we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan and talked about how we can close that gap between what we think and what we actually do. That at some level we have to identify with those who are in need and respond to what God has done for us. Now this morning we're going to dive into what I think is one of the most challenging, difficult teachings in the Bible. Are you ready? I want to take you to Matthew 25. This particular text functions like a parable, and I love what uh, theologian Klein Snodgrass says about parables. He says they are prophetic instruments used to get God's people to stop, reconsider their way of viewing reality, and to change their behavior. 
Another preacher said it this way, parables are like a rock in your shoe. They keep reminding you of things. When we look at parables, we're not looking for fully fleshed out theology. We can go to other places for that. But they cause us, they challenge us to stop, reconsider the way we think, and change. A little context before we dive into the text. This is Jesus' last sermon recorded in the book of Matthew. This is the last part of his last sermon. He He will go to the cross in a few days. This is two days before the final Passover, the night on which Jesus would be betrayed. And he is having a conversation, a teaching moment with his disciples. They're talking about, Jesus is saying, hey, that the, the temple's going to be destroyed. I'm going to return. And they're asking him, what's this going to be like? When you return, what's, what, how are we going to know these things? This is where we get some of these, um, if you've heard the expression, I will return like a thief in the night. Nobody knows the hour. I think it's a reminder for us even now as we, sometimes when we hear of all kinds of world events, we want to connect the dots between what's happening now and what's happening in the book of Revelation and other places. And can we, can we, can we connect all these dots? Jesus would say, I believe, be careful. Be careful on how you do that. Don't get wrapped up into that. Wait, prepare, be faithful. He has parables that instruct us in that. But then he's going to get to Matthew 25, and he's going to deal with some really hard, difficult stuff. Let me take you to Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick. And you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and close you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these Brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? 
he will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Stop, reconsider the way you see, and change. Three ways I believe this text can lead us to that this morning. First of all, I want to give you the point and then I'll unpack it. Prepare for a judgment that is real, personal, and eternal. Welcome to church. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne, his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Can you picture the scene? Jesus is using parabolic language here, but he is describing a reality. Can you picture this? Jesus has returned not in a manger, but in his full glory as the king. In all of his fullness, all the angels are with him. All the nations will be gathered. You will be there. I will be there. We will be there. Jesus is on the throne. This is not what is known as the Bema seat in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where we all will stand before Jesus and give an account of our works, and he will reward us accordingly. This is not that time. We ought to be prepared for that time, but that is not this particular time. This is the white throne judgment of Revelations 20. This is a time when he will separate. He says in, math, or in uh, verse 46, Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life, to an eternal fire prepared for the devil in his angels. i got to be frank with you, I did not want to lean into this part of the sermon today. But I feel like the Spirit said, you need to give a warning to our people this morning. That this is a reality, and I love you too much not to just talk straight with you this morning, because this stuff matters, amen? I like talking about heaven and eternal life and that great reunion. I, I like talking about this. But we got to talk about hell as well. We've got to talk about the eternal punishment. Now, as I, as I think about that, it, it gives me pause. I mean, I'm reminded uh, for years I taught, uh, taught high school English. Uh, junior lit in the anthology was Jonathan Edwards' Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Maybe you read it growing up. And it's, there's this image of the spider dangling above the fire, just hanging by a thread. And our good works are like a rock that would go right through the web. And that, that, that troubled me. And what they did in the, in the actual text, they, they kind of omitted some of the Jesus rescue in you part. But that was, 
that was the image. One day I was teaching that and, and there was something wrong with the heating system and it was like 90 degrees in my room and sweat is coming down my forehead as I am reading this aloud. But here's what we do sometimes. We, we turn that into a cartoon. Sometimes we don't take it seriously because we just think of these images and we can't imagine it. Have you done that? We do that with the devil sometimes. We, we, we can turn the devil into a, a cartoon and escape its reality. Or I'm reminded of uh, some of you are way too sanctified to know this song, but uh, ACDC's Highway to Hell. Some of you know that. All my friends are going to be there too. I'm on the highway to hell. Hell is a party. It's not what God's word says. But we need to think about it. There are descriptions of hell that talk about darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. There's an eternal fire of punishment. Now what those things actually mean, I don't know. We can look at it as metaphorical language, but metaphors always describe a reality. So I don't think it, it softens it that much. I've told you about my MRI machine experiences that are really painful. I, last time I was in one for like 45 minutes, would, this, would being in an MRI machine forever in the darkness of that be like, hell, I don't, I don't know what that experience is, but there's, there's a separation from God. There is a disintegration of who you are that is real. If we believe that God's word is true, we have to believe that as well. Now, a couple quotations to, to get you thinking about this for a minute. J.I. Packer says this, Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually chose either to be with God forever, worshiping him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. C.S. Lewis says that this way, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it yourself and wish you could stop it, but there may come a day when you can no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. I would just encourage you this morning to, to not distance yourself from the doctrine of hell because it seems like a cartoon or something you can't get to, but to think about it, to let the gravity of it sink on you for a moment. Now, the text seems to ask the question, what determines where I go? A simple reading of the text, you might say, well, if I, if I give to the poor, if I do good deeds, then I'm in. If I fail to do that, I'm out. So if I don't give the guy on the street 20 bucks because he's got a sign that I am going to the bad place. I don't believe that's what it is saying but let's see what the Bible has to say because this stuff matters. I want to take you to our second point. We've got a 
we got to hurry this morning, but number two, preach the gospel to yourself and be transformed by it. So we want to be prepared for the reality of this eternal judgment. But the text invites us to preach the gospel to ourselves and be transformed by it. I want to take you to Ephesians 2, verse 1. Paul says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Rebecca Pippert gives a helpful description of God's wrath. She says, God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer of sin, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. I want you to play forward that idea of self-centeredness and selfishness, this cancer that Pippert describes. Paul continues in Ephesians 2, 4, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul makes it clear we cannot come to God with our resume of good works. We are saved by grace through faith. Amen? So this work stuff, we've got to set that aside. But what's Jesus talking about? He's not going to let us off the hook. Let's get back to the parable. What do you notice about the sheep and the goats? Well, they're both surprised. Did you catch that? They're both surprised. They're not surprised necessarily that their sheep or their goats or where they're going. They're surprised by something else. The sheep, the ones who cared for the least of these, the poor, the sick, the imprisoned, the vulnerable, they didn't do it to build up their spiritual resume. That's just who they are. There's no ulterior motive. There's no hypocrisy. There's no expectation of getting anything in return. That's who they are. That is their DNA. They give sacrificially. That's just who they are. The goats don't protest where they're going. They're surprised that what they didn't do matters so much to Jesus. Why? They have a different DNA. 
a different makeup. They're ruled by their self-interest, their their self-centeredness, their self-absorption, and they will spend eternity apart from God. I want you to think about that for a moment. Let me close out Ephesians 2.10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, let me reconcile these for a moment. It's important that we get this right. There's the root of the gospel that nourishes the fruit of good works. Let me say that again. There is the root of the gospel, the gospel that I am saved by grace through faith. I didn't earn it. I can't bring my resume. That is the root. That is the good news that I have been rescued that I was like the man dead on the road that the good Samaritan, the great Samaritan Jesus rescued. There is a root of the gospel that nourishes the fruit of my good works. Now part of what Jesus is getting at here, if there is no fruit, if there is no fruit, I think he's got to say there's no root. If there's no fruit, there's no root. How do you know you're a sheep or goat? You you know by your fruit, by the good works that you do. And specifically, Jesus is leaning into how do we care for the least of these? How do we care for the poor, the vulnerable? If we have nothing in us that says, I need to help, I need to be a part of this, there's no fruit, I would ask, do you have a root in Jesus, in the gospel? It's the question I would have for you today. Now, the good news of the gospel, the more I understand and actually believe that it's not my works, the harder I will work for God. Not out of guilt, not out of shame, but a response to God's love. That's what nourishes the fruit. Now, how do you preach the gospel to yourselves? Romans Paul's going to tell us in Romans that we are transformed by the renewal of our mind. We have to understand this. We have to apply this. The more that I see how Jesus rescued me, that he took care of my hunger, my thirst, my isolation, the more compassion I can have for those in need. Now, the third and final point this morning prioritize caring for the vulnerable. Verse 40, the king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. The challenge is to reprioritize our lives. To reprioritize our lives. To care for the vulnerable. To make room And when we do this, we see the vulnerable not as projects, not as problems, not as performances, 
but as real people that we can love, that we can build relationships with. I think of the Hope Center, and I was, uh, my wife Kim worked with the first residents that were at the Hope Center for like nine months, every Saturday, hanging out all day. And it was great to hear stories of the relationships that she was building. The love in that. That's what we are called to do, to, to build relationships, to put our care for the poor, our care for the vulnerable, at the core, at the center of who we do, are, not just at the periphery, not just as an extra credit, not just as an add-on, but at the very core and align our hearts with God's heart. Now, let me leave you with a challenge. Some of you may be saying, and you've said, yes, I get it, I get it, I get it, I understand it, I understand where you're coming from, I'm not going to argue with God's word, but how do I do it? How do I get started? How do I change? Let me put it to you this way. If I said you have to work two more hours a week to pay for your kid's college, would you do it? If I said you have to keep driving your old car to contribute to fully fund your retirement account, would you do it? If I said you have to study an extra two hours a night to get into your dream college or dream graduate school, would you do it? If I said to your parents here, you ha- if, you, if you, you had to read to your kid every night before she went to bed so that she could be successful, in school, would you do it? My guess is if you were in any of those categories, you would say, yes, I would do that. We give to what matters to us. Our vision for God's kingdom has to be so clear, so concrete, and so compelling that it matters. So if I said to you now, You have to give up blank time and blank money to care for blank in need. What would you do? Money, blank money, blank time for blank real person. What would you do? Well, I want to invite the Holy Spirit to work on you in these moments. I'd invite you to bow your heads. We're going to prepare ourselves to come together to the communion table. I will direct us here in a moment, but I would invite you now to simply invite the Holy Spirit to work. come to the table, we come as followers of Jesus, as those who put their faith and their trust in him. And we come and we remember, oh, do we remember our hearts are prone to forget. So if you're a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to to take out the bread And we remember that on the night Jesus was betrayed, 
he gathered his disciples in the upper room and he, he broke the bread. And after giving thanks, he said, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat, do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, Jesus took the cup. He said, this is my blood shed for you. This is the blood of the new covenant, blood that will forgive sins. Just as we receive the bread, may we now receive the cup together. God's word tells us as often as we eat the bread and receive the cup, we proclaim the Lord's death we look forward to his return. Would you pray with me? Father, we do come to you in these moments thankful for your word, thankful for grace. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did on the cross to pay the price, to pay the penalty for our sin, to to bring in your kingdom we thank you, Father, for your forgiveness. And now as we let your spirit work in us, may that love that you have shown to us, may we extend that to others to care for your people, to care for those who are most vulnerable. Show us what we need to cut back on, get rid of, so that we can do that for you and your kingdom. It's in Jesus' name we pray.